Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to the book of 2 Timothy, we are going to continue our study in 2 Timothy, and we are up to chapter 3. We are not going to be able to go through every little part of this passage in one Sunday, uh, but we're going to at least start it this morning. We're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. So if you're able to stand, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 9, just for the context of it. But we're going to spend most of our time in verses 1 through 5, and really most of the time in verse 1 in some ways. But to give ear to the word of God this morning, Paul writes, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified concerning the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, as I said, we're continuing our study. We've been going through 2 Timothy for a while now. And here in our text, the apostle is warning his young apprentice pastor, so to speak, Timothy, of the dangers and difficulties that he would face as he faithfully carried out the work of ministry uh, in the churches. Uh, Paul's goal here, among other things, was he did not want to leave Timothy unprepared for the difficulties he was going to face due to either ignorance or an undue sense of idealism or success. Timothy and all pastors, I think, today and all elders today needed to know that in the last days there were going to be times of difficulties, or if you have the King James, it puts it in a more, uh, more stark terms. It says a perilous times, much more difficult sounding than just mere Difficulty For all the wonderful successes and the God-given progress of the gospel uh, that Paul and Timothy got to see and that we get to see today of God saving sinners, there is still going to be difficult or perilous times. The gospel ministry is never going to be easy, and Paul would have Timothy to be uh, in no way ignorant of or unprepared for that, for that reality. And why, why is that? Why are there perilous times Uh, In these last days, what reason does Paul give? Now, you could say a lot of things. You could say that the the evil one is still roaming around like a roaring lion. He is still stirring up persecution. You could get uh, into that, certainly. But what does Paul point out here? Among the other reasons you might be able to point out, the one that he mentions primarily is that people or men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, and the rest of that long, long list that he uh, gives in verses 2 through through 9. And 
Frankly, the men that Paul is speaking of here in this particular text and in this context, we might think in ourselves, and I think I've, I've thought this wrongly as I've read this text in my life in years past, we might assume or presume that well, these are those people out there. That's not what he's talking about, is it? Paul's not saying there's some bad, bad people way out there uh, that have nothing to do with the church whatsoever, that you better watch out for them. You, know, you would think that, that when he says to avoid such men, well, that'd be kind of easy. You know, some of us kind of live uh, in sort of a Christian bubble. You know, we have uh, all of our, our circles of acquaintances and friends sometimes can be uh, of, of, of professing Christians. But Paul isn't, isn't talking specifically here about those who are outside of the church. He's actually talking about those inside the visible church related to it in some way. As much opposition as the world, quote-unquote, out there represents to the work of the gospel, some of the most vehement uh, and virulent opposition to the truth of the gospel has always seemed to come from within the visible church, from those who, who name the name of Christ and profess to be believers, or even those, many of times, those who, who profess to be called to ministry are some of the worst Offenders. Paul spends much of this uh, part of the chapter <clears throat> equipping Timothy to know how to deal with such things as he carried out the course of his gospel ministry. And we in the church today would do well to take these same things to heart as well. For we too, wasn't just Timothy, we too are living in the last days. And so at times it, it, it goes to, to, to stands to reason that we too will be faced with some of the same kind of of difficult or even perilous times ourselves if we are faithful in serving Christ in our generation. So the first thing I want to look at this morning is from verse 1. The first thing we need to be clear about is what what is Paul talking about? What is he referring to when he speaks of in the last days in verse 1? This can be a very confusing uh, topic if we're not careful. Uh, what what are the last days? When I say that phrase, what comes to your mind? Uh, maybe I should say when are the last days, not just not just what are they. Many of us, I think, for a, a number of reasons, sometimes some of us have been uh, steeped in dispensationalism and other things. Uh, sometimes churches of that ilk can tend uh, to focus very much on end times prophecies and things like that. And so some of us, I think, for various reasons, tend to think of when you hear the last days, you think of something far off in the future that deals with the time uh, right before the return of Christ. Now, is that what Paul is talking about here in verse 1? Is he telling Timothy, think about the logic, the flow of thought here. He's, he's equipping him for the things, the difficulties of the ministry in, in his day, day and age. And he, he's saying, hey, watch out for false teachers. Here's how you deal with it in chapter 2. And then all of a sudden, and out of the middle of nowhere, Paul says, oh, by the way, in some far off time having nothing to do with you, you know, you think it's bad now. It's really going to get bad then. So you should feel privileged that you get to minister now. Is that what Paul's saying? Is Paul saying, hey, Timothy, buck up, because it could be a whole lot worse. It could be raining, right? Uh, we like rain here, but um, no, that's not, that's not what he's saying. He's not writing to Timothy about something that would have no relevance and no real bearing on his life and ministry. In fact, everything in the context says just the opposite. Everything he says here has a sense 
of timeliness and urgency to it. In fact, Paul actually instructs Timothy, if you noticed it in the text, to act in a certain way in response to these things. He gives him what we call an application, doesn't he? He says, because of all this, verse 5, avoid such men or avoid such people, doesn't he? Well, if they're long off in the future, that's easy. I won't get in a time machine, Paul. I'll never have to get near. I'll never have to rub elbows with them. No, he says avoid them because he's going to see them. And maybe he probably, in some ways, already, already had. He instructs Timothy and expects him to act in a certain way in response to the things he tells him in this passage. After all, again, he does tell him to avoid such people. The New Testament is abundantly clear that we are living in the last days. Now, right at this moment, we are living in the last days. And we have been living in the last days ever since the advent, the first advent of Christ in his incarnation. So in some ways, in, in the providence of God, this is a fitting text for us to go over around Advent and around the Christmas season. You could say that the first Christmas ushered in the last days. In fact, Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul says something very much like that. He doesn't use the same phrase, but in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So when, when historically speaking, not the year, but when did Christ come according to what Paul says? When the fullness of time or times had come. All the times, the ages and things before that led up to this one thing. And when that, those times were fulfilled and reached their, the end of their purpose, God sent forth his son. Everything throughout history had been building up to and preparing for the way for the son of God to come and be born in the likeness of men. You could say, according to Paul, it was the dawn of a new, a new day. It was even the dawn, in many ways, of the last days themselves. In the very beginning of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. Our Lord Jesus himself said something very similar. He doesn't use the same phrase. He doesn't say in the last days. But in the beginning of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, uh, it says this. Now after John, that's John the Baptist, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, here it is, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the gospel in other words the thing we've been waiting for for thousands of years the thing that the old testament scriptures and prophecies had been prophesying and pointing forward to and building towards it's now that was you know according to, to mark's gospel that was the first basic thing that jesus proclaimed when he set out upon his earthly ministry after his baptism he preached the gospel, but he talked about the time being fulfilled and the kingdom of, of heaven being at hand, the kingdom of God being at hand. Um, this was in some ways part of Christ's message and preaching from the very beginning, according to Mark. Likewise, maybe the most important passage, and we don't know who wrote it. Some assume it was Paul, but we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. But the very first two verses in the book of Hebrews, they're probably very familiar to many of you. It says Hebrews 1 one and two, it says, long ago at many times and in many ways, 
God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, and here it is, but in these last days, in these last days, he, that's God, has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. That's a, that's a heck of an opening statement, isn't it, for that letter? You know, God spoke to the, the fathers for, you know, two thousand, whatever many thousands of years it was, in all kinds of different ways. Think about your Old Testament. Think about the things that God used to reveal himself to men. Think about the dreams, the visions. Uh, think about some of the odd things he had his prophets do. Like the prophets, some of them had some weird jobs. They didn't just come out and say, thus saith the Lord, although they, they did do that. Sometimes God had them act things out. You know, build a little, you know, it's almost like they're playing with Legos. You know, build a build a, a model of the city of Jerusalem and put a siege mound around it and, you know, all these things. He had, was it Hosea, you know, marry a harlot and all these things. God, God revealed the gospel to mankind before the coming of Christ in all kinds of strange and, and various ways. He, he did that in all these different things throughout history. Um, and so what was the distinguishing characteristic, according to Hebrews, of the coming of the last days? What was the one thing that Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2 points to to establish that we are now in the last days? The advent of Christ. The coming of Christ. God had spoken to mankind, quote, at many times in many ways throughout history. And in many ways, those, those revelations that God spoke to the Old Testament uh, Father is that in all those different ways, what was he prophesying to them about? The coming of Christ. He, all those things were preparatory for and pointing forward to the, the advent and the coming of, of Christ who was yet to come. Now, we, we've looked at this at the men's breakfast, but it's one of those passages that always comes to my mind when we talk about these things. Uh, Jesus had some similar words to his disciples on the Emmaus Road after the resurrection. Uh, from the dead in Luke chapter 24 verses 25 to 27 this is what Luke writes he says and he that's Jesus and he said to them O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken in other words you don't understand anything in the Old Testament they wouldn't have called it that like you guys aren't very bright are you like you should have had this what else what did you think you were reading I'm putting words in his mouth and I shouldn't do that but that's the, the implication, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to, to believe all the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things, the cross and all these things, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then verse 27, one of the most uh, pivotal verses, at least for me, in all of scripture. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, what's that? It's the whole Old Testament. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted or explained to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, everything in the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi was, was pointing forward to the coming of Christ, his cross and his resurrection, his sufferings and his glory to such a degree that he could tell them, you know, sort of, you're a little slow. You're slow of heart to believe what you've been reading all this time. You should have gotten this. What else did you think it was saying? It was pointing forward to Christ and not just Christ in some general, vague way, 
but it was prophesying all these things of his sufferings, especially the cross, and his glory. And so the last days are marked by God's full and final revelation of the sufferings and glory of his only begotten Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. They were revealed in the Old Testament, but they were finally and fully revealed at the coming of Christ. There is no, according to Hebrews 1, and common sense, there is no greater revelation from God to man than that which he gave us in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no next thing, there is no next big thing other than Christ's return. The main thing that we were supposed to be revealed to has been revealed to us when Christ came, died, and rose. Again, is it any wonder that at the birth of Christ, as it was told and announced to the shepherds, that Luke's Gospel in chapter 2 tells us that suddenly there was with the angel, the one who gave the message to the the shepherds, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those who with whom he is pleased. An, 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 an angel choir, and I, I, I hesitate to use that phrase because when it says heavenly host, that's really a military term. You know the, the, the Old Testament phrase, the Lord of hosts is with us? That's a, that's a military term. That's a, that's a the God of angelic armies. These aren't the little fat baby cherubs that you see in the Hallmark cards. These are things that... If you were to see them, you would be terrified of them if they didn't tell you not to be afraid. Well, a whole host of them, the place lit up, and they're, I mean, what else could you possibly want at the coming of Christ? What, what could you possibly want to show to us how important the coming of Christ was than that? That is certainly what the scriptures teach us. So we are living right now and have been since the coming of Christ in the last days. They are not just some far off future thing uh, that we are often sometimes told about. So we're living in the last days now. We've been doing so since the advent of Christ nearly 2,000 years ago. It is quite the privilege that we take it, take for granted, I think many of us do, I know I do, that, that we who believe are living on this side of the advent of Christ. We live in the age of the full revelation of Christ's incarnation, cross, resurrection, and ascension in glory. It's a blessed privilege for us, if you ever think about it, that we live in the age of the full revelation of the gospel. We aren't groping around, so to speak, in the dark trying to put the pieces together. The whole puzzle has been laid out in front of us, not just the, you know, when you do a puzzle, you make the border, then you try to find little things. The whole thing's put together for us. The whole picture is now in full focus, and yet there is something else that we must know, but Paul tells Timothy to know or understand in our text. We're in the last days, but because we're in the last days, there will still be tough or perilous times for us to deal with. Look again at verse 1. Paul says, But understand this, or know this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty or perilous times. That's the way the King James puts it. Um, The only other use of that Greek word in the New Testament that we know of is found in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, a strange text where you and I are told of the Gadarene demoniac. Remember him? He was in the, the, uh, what's the worst place you could put a demon-possessed man? In a cemetery. Talk about whistling, you know, past the graveyard. They're just going around it all the way. Well, what does it say about him? It says that he was so, quote, fierce, same word as perilous, He was so fierce that no one could pass by the place where he was. 
You didn't just cross the street to get around him. You avoided that place altogether for all kinds of reasons. But he was so fierce or perilous or dangerous that nobody would go near him with a 10-foot pole. That's the same word that Paul uses here. It's not mere difficulty. It's not mere inconvenience. It is uh, danger even in some, in some ways. So Paul, remember where Paul was when he wrote this letter? He was in prison awaiting his execution for preaching the gospel. When Paul's writing this, he wants Timothy to understand the times in which he would live and minister the gospel. It was not going to be easy, and that holds true in our day as well. We might be tempted to think that we live in such a modern age that we don't deal with these things. We don't have to deal with the difficulties and trials of the Christian life and of holding forth the word of life. John Calvin puts it this way, and John Calvin certainly knew a thing or two about being persecuted for the gospel. He says, many, quoting on this, this commenting on this text, many imagined that there would be a blessed peace immune from every trouble. But his meaning is that even under the gospel, there will not be such a state of perfection that all vices will, will be banished and every kind of virtue flourish. Therefore, the pastors of the Christian church will have to deal with the ungodly and the wicked just as much as the prophets and godly priests of old. It follows that this is no time for idle repose. And if you know anything of John Calvin's day, the days of the reformers, they had to deal with quite a bit of persecution as did the, the Puritans after after them. Likewise, John, John Stott writes this. He puts it this way. Surely he, that's Paul, surely he wants to emphasize that opposition to the truth is not a passing situation, but a permanent characteristic of the age. Not a passing situation, but a permanent characteristic of the age. Perhaps he, that's Paul, fears that Timothy will be over-optimistic, hoping that if he just lies low for a while... The storm will pass, but Paul Paul gives him no such hope. We too should understand this, quoting verse 1, and be quite clear about the perils and troubles which will beset us if we stand firm in the truth of the gospel. Second verse, same as the first, right? Same kind of idea. It's not just going to be easy. Now, you know, you, you may have uh, in yourself come to a place where your your theological persuasions are have changed you know sometimes people ask me and I, I'll, I'll apologize for using terms like this in a sermon but people usually pastors theology nerds they'll ask each other oh are you post mill are you all mill and that, that's a reference to when do you think Christ is coming back and it's also a reference to how you think things are going to go you know and, and a lot of times uh, we can characterize some of them won't think it's fair but we'll say that a lot of times, all millennial folks have a kind of a pessimistic, not all, uh, but a pessimistic view of things. Uh, they almost sound dispensational at times, where they say things are just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse until the end comes, and the, the church will be a little tiny speck on the map, you know, so to speak, until the end. Uh, post-millennial, in some ways, is a more usually a more optimistic view of, of the progress of history and the gospel. And I, if you, depends what day you ask me. It depends what I'm reading. If you, if you want to know which one I am, but I think more and more I tend to to, to uh, lean, no pun intended, uh, post mill. In other words, I, I think it's I think it's wrong headed to think that the gospel is going to do this much 
that Jesus came and did all this and, and died and rose again and is at the right hand of God reigning over all things, but not much is going to happen. In fact, if you, if you look at history uh, since Christ's ascension, it's mind-boggling, if you really think about it, how much change has happened. At the coming of Christ, the entire world was in darkness. Pagan, pitch black, death, and darkness covered the world except for one little strip of land for the most part in the Middle East. Now the gospel has gone everywhere. Entire continents have been transformed. It doesn't mean it always stays that way. Sometimes there's revival in a place and then it kind of waxes and wanes and goes somewhere else. But Jesus is at work. You know, remember Pastor Gary, it's probably been a few years, he preached on Psalm 110.1 and called it God's favorite Bible verse. What is that verse? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until what? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The scripture in, in Isaiah 9 that Rob read earlier this morning in the service, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be what? No end. Not, well, there will be a little bit here, a little tiny bit there. He's in the business of conquering the world with the gospel. That's what Jesus is doing. The book of Acts showed you a, a, a sneak preview of it all through the book, the conquering gospel going forth. Um, so we who believe shouldn't be pessimists. We shouldn't be expecting, I think, everything to just get worse and worse until the end. I think we should neither forget nor sell short the progress of the gospel of Christ that it has made throughout the world and that the pages of scripture that we read and history bear witness to the, of, of these things to the glory of the conquering Christ. The book of Revelation tells much of the same story. Persecutions but the gospel goes out conquering. The, the, Jesus Christ is pictured as a rider of a horse going out conquering and to conquer. If you ever read William Hendrickson's commentary on Revelation, it's, it's very readable. It's not what you think of when you think of a commentary. Uh, he, he calls it more than conquerors. That's from Romans chapter 8, but the same idea I think is there. We, we should have tremendous faith in the power of the gospel of Christ. Romans 1.16, Paul says, it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel is still the power of God. We should keep in mind that Christ Jesus, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? To save sinners. And he says, of whom I am foremost or of whom I am chief. We just, we just mentioned Psalm 110. Psalm 110.1 is the guarantee, the promise of God the Father that he will make Christ's enemies in this world a footstool for his feet. He will conquer them one of two ways. He will judge them or he will convert them. And he does far more of the latter than we may think and may assume. All these things tell us Christ's reign will know no end. The increase of his government shall know no end. And so when we are discouraged, we should remember the testimony of Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 and 10, one of my favorite passages as we went through that book a number of, probably a year or so ago, but Revelation 7, 9 through 10, it says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
Jesus didn't, didn't die on the cross and rise from the dead on the third day to save a handful of people. He didn't die just to save a little tiny remnant of the world where that'll fit in one little area. I think we're going to be shocked at the number of people that we see in heaven on that day when Christ comes and takes us home. What does it say? A great multitude that no one could number. No one could number. In fact, what is that? That is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Go outside and look at the stars, he tells him. If you can number those, good luck. You can number your descendants. He wasn't talking primarily about his physical descendants, was he? That may have been a, you know, sort of true in that regard as well. It's hard for us to count millions and millions of people. He's talking about his spiritual descendants. If, if you are of faith, you are blessed with believing uh, with faithful Abraham. You are the child of Abraham, a child of that promise, if you believe in Christ. Despite the worst that the evil one in this life and those under his sway can throw at us, the gospel will conquer and prosper, not without difficulty, not without peril, but it will conquer and prosper. Why? Because it's the power of God doing it. If the gospel wasn't the power of God, the persecution the world throws at it would have nipped it in the bud 2,000 years ago. We wouldn't be sitting here worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. There would probably be no church and no gospel left in this world. One day there will be so many of the redeemed in heaven that you and I will be amazed at the sovereign grace and power of God in his gospel. But that doesn't mean that things are always going to be easy or that we'll just cruise along on beds of ease going from one victory to the next. There will be difficult times. There will be perilous times. And we who believe should be mentally prepared for them. We should, to use Paul's phrase elsewhere, gird up the loins of our mind to be prepared for action. We should expect these things and not be surprised by them. Satan is not going to sit idly by while his house is being plundered. And his house is being plundered, whether it looks like it to us right now in our land or not. Now, this does not mean that everything will be a constant fight. It doesn't mean that we'll live in a constant state of peril or trouble in serving Christ. It may feel like that sometimes. John Stott goes on to say in his commentary, What Timothy is to understand about the last days is not that they are uniformly, continuously evil, but that they will include perilous, quote-unquote, perilous seasons. That's the word that Paul uses, times or seasons. You know, we, we, we use those kind of phrases in our everyday life sometimes, too. I'm, going, I'm just going through a rough patch. I'm going through a season of life where there's all these difficulties. That's the same kind of idea that Paul uses here when he uses that word um, seasons or times. Um, he says, church history confirms that this has been so as the vessel of the Christian church puts out to sea it was not to expect a smooth, untroubled passage. It has been buffeted by storms and tempests and even hurricanes. But the whole trip isn't that. But those times do come. There are seasons of life in our lives and in the life of the church as well that are difficult, that have some peril to them. Thankfully, that is not all the time, but it certainly happens to the best of us, doesn't it? Some of you, you might know, I know, some of you have recently come through trials of your faith. Some of you are going through trials like that right now. And some of us may have such trials of our faith awaiting us just around the corner. These things happen. There are seasons when these things happen. But God is faithful. 
and he will make all these things work together for yours and, and my for our good. Romans 8:28. The church will face difficulties if she's faithful to the gospel of Christ. If we're faithful to the gospel, we should be almost surprised when we don't have difficult times. Uh, and if maybe if we're not having any difficult times, maybe it's a sign that we're not really being that faithful with the gospel to begin with. And this is nothing new. We should not be surprised by it or overly disturbed by it. Why? Christ is building his church. We aren't building it. Christ is. And the gates of hell, he says, cannot prevail against it. Matthew 16, verse 18. Well, last but not least, what is the reason for these seasons or tough times? You may have heard the phrase, it's been uttered, I don't know who, who came up with it, but they say that weak men make hard times. Well, we must have a lot of weak men in our country right now because we are having some pretty hard times. Well, Paul tells us here that when it comes to perilous times for God's people in the last days, what's the main cause or reason for those times that Paul points us to in the text? Wicked men are the cause. They may not be the ultimate cause, but they are, the, in many ways, the cause. He's been dealing with this truth throughout much of the letter, especially in the previous chapter, chapter 2. And so here in chapter 3, he has not begun a new, brand new, unrelated topic. He's still in the same subject he has been in from chapter 2 before it. The description of the troublemakers that Paul gives us in verses 2 through 9 is in a lot of ways a continuation of what he was already saying in the previous chapter about those within the church who oppose the work of the gospel. Lord willing, we'll go into more detail in the weeks to come about this list. I don't want to shortchange it. I don't want to dwell on too much of it. Uh, but look again just briefly at verses 2 through 9. This is Paul's description of those that Timothy has to watch out for, right? He says, For people, or men, will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, tell us how you really feel, Paul, right? Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Don't have much of that in the church today, right? Um, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, Avoid such people or avoid such men. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as, uh, I don't know how to pronounce these names, but I'm going to guess, Jonas and Jambres, or maybe Jonas and Jambres, opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Notice in verse 2, what's the first word? For. In other words, he's giving you the reason for the perilous times. He's saying that in the last days, there'll be perilous times. Why? For, because people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and the rest. He's, he's connecting what goes after with what went before and giving us the reason for it. And so these tough times or perilous times, what's the, at least the human cause of it, is wicked men uh, who will be lovers of, of self and lovers of money and, and the rest. 
Now, while the church will certainly be opposed and persecuted by those outside the visible church, that's not the group Paul has in mind here, is it? Paul doesn't disregard that. But here, for Timothy's sake, he's saying, oh, by the way, it's not just those way out there. There's some within the orbit of the visible church that you have to watch out for as well. He has in view here people who profess the name of Christ, and they are in some way, at least for a time, connected to the visible church. Now, that may sound shocking to you. You may be sitting here saying, that doesn't make any sense. Why would any professing Christian, you know, be, be these things and be such an opposing uh, uh, opponents of, of the gospel? But if you've been a believer in Christ long enough, you have certainly seen the truth, I think, firsthand of these things borne out, haven't you? If you haven't noticed it, I hate to say it, but you will. You will. You will see it. Um, that's, that is just the way that it is. Um, he has in view here people who are professing Christians in some way, shape, or form. Uh, how many are there that go by the name of Christian, and maybe some of these people you even know, who deny the truths of Scripture, who deny the truth of the gospel, who oppose the work of the gospel, and who seek to lead the people of God astray in many things? You, you, can't, there's, you can't even shake a stick at them, whatever the phrase is. There's so many of them, you can't possibly even begin to point them all out. I can think of a number of things. You, you, you think of the liberal churches who deny scripture altogether, deny miracles, deny the incarnation, the virgin birth, all these things. They, um, there are churches that uh, they, I think their, their, their uh, doctrinal statement is whatever CNN is pushing at the moment. <laughs> There are churches whose uh, stances on abortion would make your skin crawl, whose stances on, on sexuality, the biblical view of it, are unbelievably wicked and not attuned to Scripture. And, and in fact, pastors and elders and others who seek to stand up for some of these truths, they see some of this stuff, the opposition firsthand. It doesn't take very long. If you stand up for the biblical view of office in the church and who should and shouldn't occupy that office, you will take fire. And I'll say friendly fire, but it's never really friendly fire. You'll take fire from within the church. You stand up for the Bible's view of, of sexuality. In this day and age, you will be slandered. If you, uh, if you are not on social media, God bless you. Do not, uh, do not join. Do not go on it. Uh, but if you ever wanted to see a more slanderous place against Bible-believing, godly Christians... Just log on to Twitter or Facebook for more than five minutes. And when somebody makes a statement about some cardinal doctrine of Scripture or stands up for the truth of the Bible, uh, you can bet, and many of the people, I won't name their names, but many of the people that you'll see firing the fiery darts at them are people who profess to be Christians. No wonder Paul says, avoid them. He says they have an appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. He's talking about professing believers, people who would say to you if you ask them, oh, sure, I'm a Christian. Well, do you believe this? Well, no. Do you believe that? Well, no. Well, the Bible says it. Well, in our day and age, we can't possibly believe that. They're conformed to the world, not transformed by the renewing of their mind, and they take it quite personal, it seems, at those who are and those who would hold forth the word of life and the word of truth. How many of the persecutions, and I mean violent persecutions, throughout the history of the Old and New Testaments and throughout the history of the church after that have come from the kind of men that Paul describes here in the orbit of the visible church. 
It almost seems like they all do. That's not literally true, but sometimes you get the, you get the feeling like, isn't, isn't that where it all comes from? How much of it is really from the unbelievers outside of the church? Think about the unbelieving Jews killing the prophets in the Old Testament. Think about the same kind of people, the people that were the Pharisees and scribes having Christ killed. Think about Judas Iscariot. Think about the Roman Catholics and others persecuting the Protestant reformers and the English Puritans after them. Some of the worst persecution in the history of the church against the work of the gospel has come from within the orbit of the visible church in many, in many ways. So may God uh, work in us by his spirit that we might take these things to heart and, and know them or understand the things that Paul says here. May he make us faithful and give us the faith to trust in him in times of trouble. And may he use us for the glory of his name, even in perilous times, that we might see him using us by his grace in the building of his kingdom to the glory of Christ. Amen.